Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, recording from STAT's New York City Bureau. And I'm Adam Feuerstein, coming to you from STAT's worldwide headquarters in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's San Francisco Outpost. It's Thursday, September 20th, and here's what's on the docket this week. We've got an interview for you with this podcast's first ever international guest. Michael Chan, a senior vice president at the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, calls in from Hong Kong to talk about the exchange's efforts to attract biotech listings. The SEC just fined Clovis Oncology and its executives $20 million to settle charges brought for misleading investors about the efficacy of a cancer drug. We'll go back three years to recap the many twists and turns of the Clovis saga. A new analysis highlights just how infrequently black patients enroll in clinical trials for cancer drugs, even for conditions that disproportionately affect them. ProPublica reporter Caroline Chen joins us to talk about what she learned reporting out that story. And finally, we'll round out this episode with another lightning round. We'll talk about the drug industry's foray into California housing policy, the rehabilitation of a politician accused of biotech insider trading, and a new Netflix series about a drug trial. But first, a word about Stat Plus. Enjoying the Read Out Loud? You can get more exclusive coverage from Adam, Rebecca, Damien, and others at Stat with a Stat Plus subscription. Stat Plus delivers daily, market-moving coverage of biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. By subscribing today, you'll get access to exclusive stories from our award-winning team every day. And as a special thanks to you, our podcast listener, subscribe to Stat Plus now and enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD, P-O-D. We hope you enjoy Stat Plus, and thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener. As China's biotech sector booms, companies and investors are increasingly turning to the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. This past spring, the exchange put in place new rules designed to ease the way for pre-revenue biotechs to raise capital in Hong Kong. The hope was to attract a flood of listings from early-stage biotechs based both in China and the U.S. So far, three Chinese companies have taken advantage of the rule change, and the experiment hasn't gone entirely as hoped. The maiden voyage was Escletus, a company working on HIV and hepatitis C treatments. Escletus' stock is down 45% since it debuted in Hong Kong at the start of August. The second listing was the cancer drug maker Beijing. This one came with an asterisk because it had previously gone public on the NASDAQ and is technically a commercial stage company through the collaboration with Celgene. Anyway... Beijing last month took out a secondary listing in Hong Kong, pricing near the top end of its expected range. Beijing's stock is down 9% since the listing. And the third one came last week. A diabetes company called Hua Medicine went public in Hong Kong, pricing near the low end of its range, and Hua's stock is down about 13% since that listing. Which brings us to our first guest this week. Michael Chan is a senior vice president at Hong Kong's Exchange, who focuses on attracting international companies to list there. He's calling in from Hong Kong to talk to us about biotech. Michael, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rebecca. It's good to be here. It's been almost five months now since the rule change went into effect that allowed those companies to list in Hong Kong. Obviously, there have been some stormy seas so far with uh, Escletus in particular, the first IPO. But I was curious, you know, big picture, how satisfied are you with how the sort of biotech experiment has gone so far on the Hong Kong exchange? So far, um, the feedback has been positive. From our side, we definitely think that uh, it's a positive start. We have listed three companies already. 
And uh, in terms of them on the IPO front, you know, they've gone well and they've completed the deals and they were actually able to launch, you know, despite the uh, market conditions. And so we feel that is a pretty good start. Overall, you know, these three companies were able to raise a total of about 1.4 billion US dollars. So, you know, we feel it is uh, even better than we've expected. As we launch this uh, Biotech chapter, we definitely think this is a long-term move for us to ensure that our market remain uh, competitive. So for us, we expect biotech to become you know, increasingly important uh, in this region, especially being so close to the mainland China market. We definitely think this is going to be something that can enhance the market and we can definitely think that it, it's going to uh, align with the explosion of innovation coming out of this region, not just China, but in the whole of Asia especially. So Michael, part of the logic behind loosening the rules in Hong Kong was to attract biotech companies from outside of China. So I'm curious, have you received interest from companies in the US and Europe? Absolutely. Uh, we've been quite uh, fortunate to uh, not only been getting a lot of uh, robust interest from China, but we have also attracted interest from uh, around the world, especially with important biotech hubs from US, uh, UK, Europe, Australia, Korea, Japan, Taiwan, uh, and Singapore. So Michael, what are the most common questions or concerns that you're getting from companies that are mulling a listing on the Hong Kong exchange? It's quite interesting, you know, with companies from different regions sort of uh, asking about different sort of questions. But the commonality is really about the long-term sustainability of the market and how the Hong Kong market can align with their long-term goals. And for that, they generally ask about the uh, attractiveness of the Hong Kong market. And that's uh, usually relate to their China-Asia strategy, which obviously in Hong Kong, uh, our platform can provide that uh, China-Asia nexus factor to them. So one concern that I've seen be raised since Hong Kong kind of embraced biotech is that there may not be enough local expertise in the city, which is to say that, you know, Hong Kong may not have enough analysts, bankers, or investors who really understand drug development in order to properly value these companies that are going public there. Do you see that as a problem? For us, uh, Hong Kong is a leading international financial center. So uh, it makes it easy for these experts in the uh, field to come work here. So, you know, in time, you know, we will definitely see our level of expertise to continue to grow and to continue to fill in the gaps in this space. In fact, you know, we've already had some companies in this field listed uh, with us, you know, since uh, 2015. So we will continue to work on that and the market will continue to, to grow in this area. So we're not too uh, overly worried about that. So, Michael, I know there was a a report over the summer uh, from Bloomberg that said that I think something like seven senior bankers and analysts in Hong Kong from like top firms, you know, Goldman Sachs, Deutsche Bank had quit to join biotech companies that were looking to list on your exchange. Are you seeing more of this kind of movement to or from companies seeking biotech expertise as a result of the rule change? 
We are actually seeing a lot of different activities in this regard. You know, people being uh, absorbed into these uh, you know biotech companies. We may see uh, some more of these kind of movements, but I think it's a healthy situation that we're seeing. There are indeed a lot of these uh, robust interests in terms of companies coming to list in the Hong Kong market. So another concern that we've heard a lot about is that. Perhaps a bubble could inflate in Hong Kong if the companies that go public there can't eventually justify the valuations that they achieve, and of course that that could possibly expose investors to serious risk over time. What do you make of that concern? You know, investors should definitely consider the risk and reward before you know going to market. And, you know, when we introduce our rules, we, we definitely try to include uh, you know appropriate investor safeguards. And uh, at the same time, recognizing the potential risk associated with these pre-revenue biotech companies, but these days, I think with these uh, kind of market conditions, a lot of the feedback from the investors and from the market is that with the natural sort of geopolitical uh, situation uh, and the market correcting because of that, I think it's really gotten a lot of these uh, companies into a more reasonable uh, valuation. Now, whether these valuations or whatever level they are at, you know, for us at this Hong Kong Stock Exchange, unfortunately, we don't really have too much of a uh, influence on that. But from our side, uh, you know, we we will uh, let the market forces determine what the valuations uh, uh, usually are, whether they are biotech or not biotech. So looking forward, Michael, you know, what's next for your biotech experiment? You know, what are your biggest goals as more biotech companies list on the exchange in Hong Kong? For us, I think, again, we were quite fortunate that the pipeline and the interest uh, for these biotech companies uh, coming to Hong Kong has been quite robust. And so for us going forward, we will continue to educate the market about, you know, the risk. And obviously for us, we'll continue to you know, gather feedback and we'll continue to try to enhance and improve our market to make Hong Kong a even more viable and a better platform for these biotech companies to list on. This week, a biotech company called Clovis Oncology agreed to pay more than $20 million to settle charges that management misled investors about just how well the company's lung cancer drug actually worked. So that's the end of the Clovis saga, but the full story of how Clovis and its leadership found themselves in trouble with the feds goes back three years, and it's kind of a doozy that's worth recounting. Yeah, so let's turn the clock back to 2015. Clovis, led by the charismatic CEO Pat Mahaffey, was a striving biotech company developing a new type of targeted drug for lung cancer. And Clovis was winning, right? Yeah, Rebecca, they were winning. In a key clinical trial, Clovis's drug rang up an impressive 60% tumor response rate. Those results blew away expectations. Clovis was moving fast to submit its new lung cancer drug to regulators for what was supposed to be an easy approval. An important context for that progress is that Clovis appeared to be sprinting past its main rival, AstraZeneca, which was developing a similar lung cancer drug, but in typical big pharma fashion, was moving slower. And of course, Wall Street loved the scrappy, hard-charging Clovis. The stock price was hitting all-time highs throughout most of 2015. 
And it looked like Mahaffey was going to make them loads of money once more. Yeah, Mahaffey was already a Wall Street darling for engineering the sale of his previous company to the biotech giant Celgene. That deal made investors billions of dollars. Now, in charge of Clovis, Wall Street saw him doing the same thing again, and they loved it. During the summer of 2015, Clovis raised nearly $300 million in a stock offering. That was a lot of money, but it didn't phase Wall Street. Investors gladly bought the new Clovis shares. But then it all fell apart. Oh, did it ever. The date? November 16th, 2015. Clovis issues a press release stating that an FDA re-examination of the clinical trial data supporting its lung cancer drug had turned up a disturbing finding. That 60% tumor response rate Clovis had been touting was badly inflated. The actual response rate was only 28%. And with that, Clovis's plans for a speedy lung cancer drug approval vanished. The stock price crashed. The FDA asked Clovis for more data. Timelines were pushed back. Clovis tried to recover from this serious stumble, but ultimately, it was forced to halt development of the drug. So what happened to that 60% number that Mahaffey and everybody was talking about? Well, Damien, you know, during those heady days of 2015, while Clovis's CEO, Pat Mahaffey, was touting the 60% response rate of his lung cancer drug to the outside world and raising hundreds of millions of dollars from investors, scientists inside the company were telling Mahaffey and other executives that the 60% figure was inflated, according to the SEC. Which means that for months during 2015, Mahaffey and the other Clovis executives knew that its lung cancer drug was in trouble, but they continued to sell a much rosier story to investors. And that brings us back to the $20 million, which is what the company and two executives, including Mahaffey, are paying to settle the charges with the SEC without admitting any guilt. So according to the SEC, Clovis raised nearly $300 million from investors based on a false claim. Is $20 million an adequate penalty? Uh, no. Well, and that's the other fascinating thing about this story is that Pat Mahaffey is still CEO of Clovis. So if the SEC charges are in fact true, which of course they didn't admit guilt and he has not been convicted, what happened was he allegedly misled investors for months at a time, raised $300 million under a false pretense, and pays a $20 million fine, which comes out of Clovis's coffers, which is to say Clovis investors are paying the fine, and he still gets to keep his job. Not a bad deal. Clinical trials have a diversity problem. This week, in a story for ProPublica, Caroline Chen and Riley Wong dug into a lot of data. They uncovered an alarming statistic. African Americans are vastly underrepresented in clinical trials for cancer treatments, even in cancers that disproportionately affect them. We spoke with Caroline about what she learned while reporting out that story. Caroline, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Caroline, how did you and Riley go about getting this story? So, we took two different data sets. Uh, one was from the FDA. So, starting in 2015, uh, the FDA started publishing what they call snapshots. So, when they approve a drug, they provide information on the racial, gender demographics um, that made up the trial. So, that was one data set. And then Riley actually went to the National Cancer Institute SEER database and got information on incident rates for each of the cancers so we could compare who was getting the cancer to who was in the trials. And so this isn't just an issue of racial diversity alone. In some cases, these drugs are for diseases that predominantly affect people of color, right? Yeah, so one of our findings was that even when um, black Americans 
are at higher risk for a cancer than white Americans, they are still highly underrepresented in these trials. Now, because there are fewer black Americans in the U.S. overall, that might be fewer raw numbers. So just to give you an example, so multiple myeloma, uh, black Americans are two times more likely than white Americans to get the cancer. So they are one out of five cases in the U.S. On average, we found that they were under 5% of trial participants. And so you talked to the FDA and to the drug industry about this, and it didn't seem like anyone was overly surprised with what you found. What did they tell you? Everybody goes, hmm, this is really challenging. So I think the industry is very aware of the problem, uh, but there is a sense that this is difficult for many reasons. There are many factors why uh, black Americans in particular are not participating in trials. And my sense was everybody kind of wants to work on it, but nobody's willing to claim full responsibility. So for example, the FDA said that, you know, they're working on this, they're supporting industry, they're encouraging patients, but they don't want to force the drug industry. And they said they don't have the authority, in fact, to set sort of numerical targets that the drug industry has to hit per trial. And the, one of the folks that I spoke to in the drug industry pointed out that, look, if you make us go get X percent of black patients, that could make the whole trial take a lot longer to enroll. It'll make the drug take longer to get to market, and that means that, you know, it's going to take longer for the drug to reach all the patients that need it. So I think they see it as a challenge, but they're worried about potential trade-offs. So Caroline, you point out in your story that income is another reason for sparse African-American representation in trials. So I'm curious, how much of this is a proxy for income? You know, what would clinical trial participation rates look like if you analyze them by income level or economic status? I really wish that the FDA had that data. Um, unfortunately, they don't. Uh, what I did find was a study that found that cancer patients, I believe it was in cancer patients only, that have a household income of under 50000 are 32% less likely to participate in a trial than uh, people who have household incomes over 50000 So that gives you a sense that there definitely are economics driving participation here. And I think that there are a number of things that came up. So one is just logistics and financial um, considerations in terms of just getting back and forth to a trial. So, you know, one of the patients I talked to for the story is now eligible for a trial. And she said, you know, it's really far. She has to drive into Atlanta. She's like, that's a lot of gas money. Um, and trials do sometimes reimburse some travel costs or parking, but they typically won't cover something like say, childcare fees, or if you have to lose a day's earnings. Um, so there are a number of other ancillary financials that can really be a barrier. The other one that actually was quite surprising to me, I hadn't really thought about this before, is the fact that sometimes trials involve other already approved drugs. So you're, you're going to get the experimental drug for free, but your insurance has to pay for everything else that is considered standard care. So that's already approved drugs, if you have a hospital stay, if you have to do another biopsy. Um, and patients who have high deductible plans or who are financially less well off and have to consider co-pays might say, hey, if I join this trial, then I'm gonna have to do another biopsy. I'm gonna have to pay the copay for that biopsy. I'm just not gonna do it. Trials have gotten more selective over the years in terms of which patients they exclude oftentimes without a solid medical reason. So Caroline, what does that mean for patients of color with comorbidities? 
Yeah, so trials tend to want what's called, quote-unquote, the healthiest sick patients. So they don't want people with hypertension, high cholesterol, who have had other diseases. And it turns out that in general, um, you know, for a varietal of societal, environmental, financial reasons, uh, patients of color tend to have more comorbidities. So this becomes yet another barrier for them. And overall, actually, I would say, you know, even not talking about color here, fewer than 5% of adult cancer patients participate in trials. So I think actually being more thoughtful about which criteria actually needed in a trial could probably make it easier for everyone to enroll trials. So that's definitely something to, to think about for the future. It's time for another lightning round. So first off, let's talk about pharma, PHRMA. So it's a trade group, and they do a lot of lobbying, and they often get involved with policy fights over pharmaceuticals and healthcare. But this month, the group contributed $500,000 to oppose a California ballot measure that would expand rent control protections across the state. So you might ask yourself, why is pharma wading into local housing policy in California? So the group claims it's because they're worried that it will make housing harder to find for all the drug company employees who work in California. But people that I talk to in California say they see a different reason, and that's that the group is settling an old political score with Michael Weinstein. He's an HIV AIDS activist who's behind uh, the series of ballot measures in California, in Ohio, a few other states that the drug industry has spent big money to oppose. So it looks like we're talking about an old-fashioned vendetta here. So, of course, we could take farm at its word, and we don't know what the group's ultimate intentions are. But if, in fact, they're spending $500,000 just to twist the knife on an HIV-AIDS researcher, that's so amazingly petty for, like, a multinational organization. All right, moving on to uh, Chris Collins, who was charged with biotech insider trading, but is no longer, no longer running for re-election. Damien, what's going on? That is correct. So you may recall Chris Collins. He's a Republican from the Buffalo area in New York. He was heavily invested in and on the board of an Australian biotech company called Innate Biopharmaceuticals. Innate sort of went pear-shaped and everybody lost all their money. And according to the Department of Justice, Chris Collins tipped off his son and then his son tipped off some other people ahead of that news being public. And then some insider trading took place. So after those charges came to light, Chris Collins took the sort of honorable tack and said, I will not seek re-election because, you know, his party probably didn't want to run a candidate who was under an active indictment. But the news this week is that he changed his mind. So relying on the reporting from the Buffalo News, which has been all over this story, that has sort of scrambled the brains of local Republicans who thought they had a deal in place. And now what would have been a pretty safe seat for the Republicans in the House could be up for grabs because, again, his opponent has a pretty easy campaign ad to draft, you would imagine. And the Buffalo News had a great line. They quoted a local Republican county chairman who didn't see this coming. He said, quote, you can't help but feel like a jilted groom at the altar, end quote. And lastly, you've heard the term Netflix and chill, but we've got Netflix and pill. Yes. So continuing Hollywood's <laughs> proud tradition of using the drug industry as a sort of combination mad scientist, Dr. Frankenstein figure, there's a new limited series coming out on Netflix called Maniac. And it stars Justin Theroux as a mad scientist slash CEO leading a drug company with the intriguing name Neberdeen Pharmaceutical and Biotech. They covered all their bases there. 
So Jonah Hill and Emma Stone star as two clinical trial participants who come under the wing of that mad scientist at Neberdeen Pharmaceutical and Biotech. And the study that they're enrolled in involves testing a sequence of pills, pill A, B, and C, designed to eradicate unhappiness, which is an interesting endpoint that I don't think the FDA would be thrilled about. And this sounds incredibly fascinating. You can watch this limited series starting Friday, September 21st. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Alex Hogan, Hyacinth Empanado, and Alyssa Ambrose, who produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And a reminder that we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like, what you don't like, what limited series we should talk about next. You can email us at readoutloud at statnews.com. And we appreciate the feedback, so thank you. Bye-bye. See you next week. Bye.